what will your future look like? The job you do today could be different than the jobs of tomorrow. Some see this as a challenge. At UCF, we see opportunity. A chance for you to grow your knowledge and strengthen your skills from anywhere life might take you. With in-demand degree programs and resources for your success, UCF Online can help you prepare for the future and all the possibilities that come with it. From the University of Central Florida's Center for Distributed Learning, I'm Kelvin Thompson. And I am Tom Cavanaugh. And you are listening to TopCast, the teaching online podcast. Hey, Tom. Hey, Kelvin. So here we are back in uh, our remote work locations. We are. I was just going to comment. It looks like you're not even in the Florida room today. Is it because it's a little chilly out there today? I am in the Florida room. It's just that um, I switched uh, the orientation of my uh, Florida room workspace. So yeah, it's warming up finally. Gotcha. But I, I had a had a blanket and a parka and one of those funny Fargo hats. No, I didn't really have a Fargo hat. I'd had a hat on, but <laughs> I know so uh, my hands are freezing. It was like you know fifty or something. <laughs> right, right. Well, hey, it's cold for us, right? Fifty That's degrees right. is cold for us. I'm I'm in the little room over my garage and I got a hoodie on. So that tells you the desperate circumstances that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing we're drinking hot coffee, though. It's always a good thing that I'm drinking hot coffee, Tom. So um, I would say normally that uh, you're probably wondering uh, what you're drinking, but I hope you know what you're <laughs> drinking today. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea I've, what's in this mug that I made for myself here. I'm using my uh, my uh, New Orleans uh, Café au lait. Cafe du Monde um, mug that I got from uh, from Upsia and Julie Uranus. So it's made it's made an appearance on the podcast prior. So is that what's in the mug too? Is uh, Cafe Ole? No, I wish no. Uh, I've got um, my uh, San Francisco Bay decaf French roast going. It's the afternoon. So I'll go with the decaf in the afternoon. That's that's your go-to. That's your go-to mm-hmm. afternoon coffee. I remember from back during lockdown. I remember that. That's right. Uh, I guess I'll slide this in here. You know, for those who are wondering why we're talking about coffee, we do build this show as a collegial conversation about online teaching and learning conducted over a shared cup of coffee. So we do talk about coffee a little bit at the beginning of each episode and try to make some kind of a thematic connection. So uh, today, Tom, you're freed from the restrictions of having to accept whatever coffee I provide. Uh, but so your your choices are open and vast. But you went to your 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 mainstay. Um, but I'll I'll tell you what um, what I'm drinking. You know I try to change it up now and again. So I am drinking out of my my uh, collector's edition uh, Star Wars on Tatooine. Star Wars back when that was one movie, and that's what we called it. Star Wars on <laughs> Star Tatooine Wars. Yeah. with uh, Luke Skywalker and the droids and the land speeder. I used to love that land speeder. There was a land speeder toy. You know, it kind of rolled along. It was great. Um, I am drinking a single origin Ethiopia from Temple Coffee Roasters in Sacramento, California. And one of the things I love about single origins is that growing regions and coffee processing practices govern to a pretty large extent, what ends up in your cup, what you taste, rather than blends, 
which we have had some good quality blends recently, but rather than blends in which the final experience is controlled really entirely by the roasting company because they set the recipe and all that. So uh, my coffee's good. I'm, I'm guessing yours is good because you keep choosing to drink it. So that must be yeah, the thing. Yeah, I like it much. Mm-hmm. It's a good old reliable coffee. Mm-hmm. Can you find a connection in all of that to the topic? Um, hmm. Well, it's not Ethiopia, I don't think. <laughs> could be. We could be um, talking about Ethiopia today. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm a little, I'm a little, uh, I think you may have to take me by the hand That's and right. guide me Sherpa-like through the forest. Well, you know, just maybe my kung fu is weak today. It uh, wouldn't be the first time. So in our remote recording uh, setting, your coffee selection choices were open and vast. And um, my single uh, origin, uh, it's really uh, the practices in the growing regions really open up um, opportunities, really for a, just a whole bunch of growers and farmers and, and companies to, um, to contribute rather than having like a couple of big companies dominate everything, right? So, um, mm-hmm. uh, so it's not just about control of a, of a final gotcha. big corporate entity. So I thought there was maybe the semblance of a connection to the topic at hand. I can see it now. Now that you've, you've – it's like staring at one of those – pictures where so there's dolphins in there and like I can't see the dolphins but if you stare long enough at it the dolphins appear and then you're like how could I have not seen those dolphins the whole time that's sort of how this connections worked for me Kelly so I get it now um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm free to choose the mm-hmm. coffee that I want and mm-hmm. we're, we're looking at sort of an open collective as opposed to a single controlled yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about open educational resources today. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, it's a topic we've talked about in the past, but uh, mm-hmm. there are so many different facets to it that there's, there's a lot that can be said about it. And um, but perhaps if I were drinking the coffee, it would have made the connection that much more clear for me. Maybe. You seem skeptical. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> the, the, Maybe. The, the, the coffee connection magic is in the actual drinking of it, I think. Maybe. Uh, yeah, maybe. So we do have an interview today uh, for uh, expert um, contributions to this, this consideration of large-scale efforts to foster OER adoption. So you, Tom, interviewed more than, at this point, more than one year ago, back during the 2019 OLC Accelerate Conference, uh, Dr. Tanya Spillavoy. So you want to tell us about Dr. Spillavoy? Uh, Sure. So uh, Dr. Tanya Spillavoy is the Director of Open Policy for WCET, which is the WICHE Cooperative for Educational Technologies. And lead instructor for SPARC's Open Education Leadership Program. SPARC is an acronym. There will be links in the show notes to more information. Um, I first got to know Tanya when we were both on the steering committee of uh, WCT, WCET at the time. And um, she has now uh, since moved to a, uh, you know, a position at WCET. So, um, uh, 
one of her big passions and what she's working on there uh, is open educational resources. And uh, we got the chance, like you said, over a year ago now to, to sit down and talk about it. And I really enjoyed the conversation. You know, it might be worth, I remember seeing both of you right at the I can't remember now, beginning or the end. I think I might have taken the picture. We have a picture of Dr. Spillavoy on, we'll have on the show notes page. And I think Tim, through his magic and the, the video version of this, will kind of do a still because it was just an audio recording. But as I recall, it's holiday themed, right? Because in uh, when Accelerate has been on site in the Disney Swan and Dolphin, it's usually right around the time that... Uh, uh, Mickey's Very Merry Christmas celebrations going on. So I recall um, Tanya having on a set of uh, Christmas-themed Mickey ears. Uh, so that might explain the seasonal affectation in the photo. <laughs> it's probably good to point that out. Uh, but uh, for all I know, those are year-round attire for Dr. Spillaboy. <laughs> Some people love the holidays a lot. Yeah. Well, and she's a... <laughs> A cheerful person in general. So. so there you go. Anything else you want to say about the interview before we cut to it? Uh, no, I think maybe we'll we'll take a listen and um, um, and then offer some reflections on the backside. Okay. Well, jump in the time machine because through podcast magic, we're going into the past. See you back here in the future. Well, Tanya, thank you very much for being on Topcast. Thanks. I'm happy to be here, Tom. So. Um, Open educational resources is a bit of a passion for you. Mm-hmm. And um, it is, uh, I, I think, personally, and it's something that we've talked about on the podcast, an, an area of growing importance in not just the online learning space, but I think uh, higher ed in, in general. So maybe you can kind of talk to me a little bit about um, you know, why you think it's so important, why, why this has become kind of a passion project for you. I think open educational resources goes along with equity, diversity, and inclusion in ways that we've worked on in the past in other forms of higher ed. And now we just realize that we're kind of coming to an era where everything has to be open. Everything has to be available to students, regardless of their background or ability to pay or where they live in the world. Um, and so for me, this has be- become a really passionate topic, um, I started as an ESL teacher and worked with students from all over the world, um, helping them learn how to speak English, and then later found online learning and realized that this was just another way to um, help more people get access to education, regardless of where they lived in the world or um, if they were able to like leave their tribal community or their farming community or if they were working parenting adults. And so now, um, after discovering open educational resources, I realized that not only could people access information by being in, using technology, now they'd have the ability to get all of the learning that they needed online for free. So it's been really fantastic to explore this and, and lead initiatives in it. Well, in your career, you've, you've sort of seen, I guess, you know, a pretty broad spectrum of of the kinds of folks who could really benefit from OER, whether that's in an urban environment or, I mean, you currently live in, a, I assume, sort of a, a, you know, you're in a rural state in, in North Dakota and you've worked in a tribal college and, um, you know, that both ends of those spectrums, uh, of that spectrum, um, I imagine has helped sort of inform that, that um, perspective you have on OER. 
It really has. It makes me realize that even though there are differences with urban and rural or language varieties, that at the baseline, everyone still just needs access right. to information. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, that passion has led you to your current role at uh, WCET. I wonder if you could kind of share a little bit about um, what you're doing with WCET and, and, and where that work has taken you. Wow, this work has been phenomenal. So in the last uh, two years at WCET, uh, we've built this vision that I had for how to do open education more collaboratively at the state level and the multi-state level. Uh, so in the United States, there are four regional compacts. There's WICHE in the West, MEC in the Midwest, uh, SREB in the Southern region, and NEBI in the New England region. Typically, they, they work to serve their own state regions, and they have wonderful initiatives based on, you know, student equity or cost reduction within their states. Not so often do the four regional compacts come together to work on an initiative, and the only one I could really think of that has happened where all four regional compacts have come together nationally around a topic is with the Sarah agreement. So (laughs) I was part of that. Um, I was a regulator and a portal agent and part of the MEC steering committee um, for Sarah. And this concept of all four regional compacts working together in concert to do something amazing on behalf of students is now the vision that I had for doing OER work nationally among all the regional compacts. So WCET is the hub for that, and primarily because I'm there. And I work with all of the regional compact policy units to do OER and scale it among all of their states. So the biggest win we had recently was, um, okay, so where do I start? There's been so much goodness. Uh, Mech, Uh, had a 12-state regional OER meeting where we brought together legislators and state policymakers, SHEO officers, faculty, students, just a variety of people, including distance ed, and we sat them at tables and had them work together on state plans to do OER within their states and then talk among the states in the MEC region uh, to do greater work with OER. So this next week, they have another big policy summit for the MEC states. Uh, The other big win was in the Nebi region in New England, and the commission dedicated a whole meeting to OER. So we are duplicating this in all of the different regions, and it's just way more successful than I ever imagined, even though, frankly, I probably just knew it would work somehow. (laughs) (laughs) I I do feel like we're kind of uh, on the verge of turning a corner uh, to scale OER. There just seems to be much more kind of in the zeitgeist about it. Um, I I remember the early days of the Orange Grove here in Florida, Mm -hmm. and um, and, and it just, it never got the the kind of wide adoption that we had hoped at the time. And maybe it was just ahead of its time. Um, that was our, like 2013, right? Yeah. Yep, uh, 14. It was, or maybe, it, and we were talking about it even, even before that. Uh-huh. Um, I remember going, going back a long time ago. And, and it's evolved into different iterations over, over the years. Um, and now it's become kind of more of a repository of, of like OER publications and things like that. But it, there was some vision in the beginning that it would have multimedia assets and other kinds of courseware and things in yes. it. Um, but I mean, I wonder if, if there are, if you, if you agree with that statement that, that um, 
those initial efforts maybe didn't get off the ground just because they were a little bit ahead and that we're now kind of reaching a point where um, there's enough underlying um, demand and maybe frustration with uh, textbook pricing, publisher, like commercial textbook pricing mm -hmm. and other kinds. Of, I mean, we see it in legislation and things mm -hmm. about about that, that um, that we're kind of on the verge of this really taking off. Would you agree with that? Yes. I, and there are a lot of dead repositories in the universe. Yeah. <laughs> I would also say that there are a lot of really great up and coming repositories that are working to make uh, to bring a lot more people involved. And I think that the key to success of a repository is combining both technology and the technologists, the visionary, and then a whole team of librarians. Mm. So what we kind of forgot about in ed tech was that we don't know how to tag things for metadata, <laughs> right? Yeah, so. that's a really important point. And, and, and that was a challenge at the time with the, with the Orange Grove. You're absolutely right. It still remains to be a challenge. Yeah. So I think that that's um, one of the ways we can all bring a lot of people together is we need technologists sitting in the room with faculty who are searching for the materials and then a librarian right next to them saying, here's how you tag it, here's how you find it, here's how you store it appropriately. And if we can bring people together, a lot more knowledge gets shared instead of having these separate little initiatives all over the place that nobody knows about, right? So the power of the compacts and this whole vision of more universal access is that there's just a lot more sharing of ideas and goodness and information so that we're all smarter. Have you seen um, any, I know the work is still relatively early um, that you've been doing at WCET, but have, do you have examples of like maybe one or two that uh, that you feel are, are kind of indicative of the kinds of things that are coming? Uh, I think that the, the Open Textbook Library has done a really good job of uh, re remaining high quality materials and having some gatekeepers on, you know, what kind of materials would be in. Uh, included in the open textbook library and then really training people around the use of it and how to disseminate the knowledge and how to include materials in a way that's thoughtful and organized and useful for everyone. I think that's probably one of the best repositories right now in terms of usefulness of materials. The next step for sure on that will be um, we need residual external materials like test banks and mm -hmm. quizzes and math um, homework that looks a little bit like my math lab or something that um, mimics what the technology is already doing in the vendor space. You, you, know, when you had mentioned uh, librarians earlier, and uh, we have just within the past year hired uh, at UCF an OER librarian. Um, and I'm wondering if, if you think that is is um, a trend? Are other schools doing that? Uh, and are librarians kind of universally uh, kind of jumping in and, and owning this space? So an OER librarian is a very recent job title. Yeah. Um, we, so Nicole, I'm good friends with Nicole Allen at Spark. And probably three years ago in like 2015, we started seeing advertisements for OER librarian. And that's how the idea of the open textbook I mean, oops, I said the wrong word. The open, the Spark Open Education Leadership Program yeah, came to that. happen. So um, we co-created an open education leadership program for librarians, and it's taught primarily online, some face-to-face. -face, and we're graduating open education librarians. 
And I think one of our graduates is at UCF, but I'm not sure. I will check. <laughs> <laughs> we have, we now are in our third uh, cohort and we have 27 people right now that are taking our courses and it's fan, it's fantastic. Great. Well, we'll try and get some information from you uh, on that and we'll include that in the show notes for the, for the episode. Thanks. Um, are, what do you see um, as you are, are kind of looking into the future? And I know that your, your current um, program is grant funded. Um, where, where do you, what do you think is coming up in the, in the short to midterm? Um, I think that there's a real concern in the OER community about, um, you know, things that look like open but aren't. And th- some of the main levers that the open education community has worked to solve is access and cost. And I think some of the publishers are now doing that um, as well or sometimes better in terms of providing, you know, publisher materials at cost and with great access. And so there's going to be a, a, a reinvention of OER. We need people who are willing to take risks in the space and also um, partner with thought leaders to create what we might call like OER 2.0, where it's not just, you know, here's some free materials and a free textbook and you can access them, but how to make them really competitively advantaged for faculty to want to adopt them in their courses. You know, that's that, you know, that last point is one that I know that I've, we've struggled with and that I have heard uh, from others um, that I know and at other institutions that, you know, faculty have been sometimes reluctant to adopt materials that are open just because of questions about rigor or where did it come from and equating some value to the to the free cost. Um, and, and it's one reason why I think the work from uh, Rice at OpenStax has been so valuable because that's a, a, a brand and a reputation that the faculty go, oh, okay, well, I know that uh, and I will, I will trust that. Do you think that, you know, more... Uh, authors are going to um, be able to provide materials that are going to be more generally acceptable by um, by the kind of skeptical <laughs> discerning faculty members, particularly at R1 schools like the one I work at. Yeah, I think that, you know, faculty in general, um, I know you, you said R1, uh, but faculty even at community colleges say the exact same things. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it doesn't even come from a certain level of faculty or a certain kind of institution. Everyone um, is concerned about high quality materials for their students. The, the glory of open is that if they don't like everything about a certain uh, learning object, they can change it. Right. So uh, the whole idea of quality and that's, that's sometimes a moot point. Um, I've heard it a lot of times, and I think we've got enough wonderful materials like at OpenStax and at o- Open Textbook Library to really, you know, say that that isn't the case anymore. Remember 15 years ago when everyone kept asking us if if uh, online learning was valuable? Could, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> right? Could people really possibly learn on yeah. a computer? Right. How can you possibly learn without a teacher right in the front of the room? And I think it probably boils down really to this need for faculty to be essential, right? So and we're all humans at the end of the day. And I want to be needed and faculty do too. And so if we can somehow break free of the question of quality or if people can learn online or can p- 
people possibly learn with an open textbook and really make the faculty feel valued and essential and help them understand that these materials are um, give them more academic freedom. Right. They're a tool for that. Right. right. Then, yeah. then we get, then we can get rid of that problem. Yeah. Well, I hope so. I think, I think we're on our way. I definitely see signs of it. Faculty seeing- are important. Just so you all know, if you're listening, <laughs> we appreciate you. That's right. Um, and I do think that there are kind of growing, at least I've seen, um, and I'm not an expert like you, but the, the a growing ecosystem around OER so that they can be updated and supported. And, you know, they're, they're not just some static thing that was relevant five years ago. And now I, I can't use it anymore. Yeah. There's a lot of passionate people doing different aspects of OER, you know, things that I don't do, like the Rebus community creates books in you know in concert with each other and I mean there's just so many cool um, groups of people doing OER with different different focuses so maybe the maybe the last question would be um, if somebody is listening to this and their institution is not currently doing anything substantial in OER but they wanted Mm -hmm. to get into it they recognized that this was important especially if they had the kind of access mission that uh, that we've talked about where would you point them? What would be a good place to start? What would be some good early wins that they could that they mm-hmm. could get? There are some great people who just go to the Open Ed Conference, and I know that that's in flux right now. So we'll see what the next iteration becomes. Uh, but on if you just get on Twitter and you follow the hashtag OER, mm-hmm. you will find your people there. So um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there are people all around the world who are excited about Open and many different organizations who are doing different things around Open. Um, I just recently found uh, a conference that's happening in London with the Alt Network, and they're they're working on the care and humanity of open. And I just really love that concept. So, I mean, regardless of who you are, or what you're interested in, there are people out there doing something that would appeal to you, whether it's technology based or human based or you know, materials-based or whatever you're interested in. I think that's great advice. Uh, in fact, I'll, I'll start following that hashtag. <laughs> I think I see it a lot, but I don't necessarily click on it. But uh, I think that's great advice and, and, and a very nice practical step for people to get started. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Tanya. We really appreciate you being on TopCast. Thanks, Tom. It's great being here. Well, Tom, that was your interview with Dr. Tanya Spillavoy. It was, yeah. As you can see, she's... Um, She's she's an expert and she's passionate about this. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. uh, like I said, I I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, I noticed actually when I was uh, beginning to pull together some of the material for the show notes that uh, since the interview, she actually was um, given an outstanding service award from Mac. She mentions uh, one of the four educational compacts that she's worked with a lot, um, the Midwestern Higher Education Compact. And I saw just uh, a few months ago as we're recording this, she received that award. So good honor. Yeah, congrats. <laughs> Well-deserved. Uh, the work The work that she's doing is, um, I think it's really important. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's really, you know, looking to in, increase accessibility and reduce costs for students. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, you know, but, Everybody working in the in the space of OER, I think, is doing really good work, and um, she happens to be having a pretty broad impact right now. Yeah, you know, I mentioned to you right before we hit record that one of the things that really struck me about your interview with uh, Tanya was well, there's a couple of things, but one is first how there is just like so much complexity and nuance behind things that some of us think are 
maybe mundane or simple. Um, I was listening um, to an interview with an author of a book um, that takes apart the modern weather forecast. And like, turns out there's a lot... (laughs) There's a lot of lot of people and a lot of computers and some dude who walks out the back door of a diner in Norway and checks like a, a little weather thing <laughs> and, and then logs it on the computer. Uh, all of that is part of the recipe of the modern weather forecast. Um, and the same thing for the internet and the same thing for OER adoption at this kind of scale, right? Like those education compacts, all that, uh, yeah. all that collaboration that that Tanya's fostering. That that's unsung work that is so important. Yeah, it struck me that you know when we talk about uh, the the kind of boots on the ground work of trying to get OER adopted and developed and accepted, um, it's usually you know we bring together groups of faculty. And then we'll have instructional designers and, and maybe librarians and we'll kind of try to sell them on the idea of, of OER and, and why it's good or how to develop it and, or how to adopt it. And um, she included several other, uh, you know, audience groups in her mm-hmm. collaborations that she's yeah. talking about. She's talking about policymakers and state mm-hmm. representatives and yep. staff of legislators and things um, that seems that seems really smart to me, oh, yeah. and uh, a way to make it stick. Um, I, I don't often hear people coming at it from from that that standpoint. Of course, her background is, you know, uh, recently as a regulator in North Dakota, and uh, she understands that policy world. Yeah. So yeah. maybe it gives her a unique insight into into you know how to pull the levers in that community uh, towards mm-hmm. these goals. No, I, I think I think that's an excellent um, observation and insight. The other thing, well, two other things that struck me. One is uh, we we said in the the, the last episode, I guess, uh, um, the top of January in real time, uh, episode eighty one. Uh, we're talking about foundational principles. Here's another one. I think you know having a good idea is easy, <laughs> but disseminating and fostering adoption and implementing at scale. That's an art, <laughs> and yeah, you know that, yeah. there's just so much working against you. Um, so to to reach the kind of forward motion that that Tanya has with all those uh, disparate groups and um, fueled by passion, but uh, because of a real good uh, outcome, that that's that's artfulness. Yeah, absolutely. So I appreciate her taking the time. Uh, to talk to us. Uh, apologies it's taken us this long to get the interview aired, but, uh, you know, all good things come to those who wait, right? As, as, as they continue to do for our uh, in-the-can TopCast guests. <laughs> Keep waiting, that's right. TopCast well, guests. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. There are more to come <laughs> that were still recorded around, around that time. So stay tuned. Yeah, a little sneak peek for the rest of 2021. Right. So should I uh, do my best to to put the landing gear down? That's right. Don't All crash right. us. So <laughs> uh, making education more affordable for students involves lowering the prices of instructional materials. You know, that's, that's a given, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Widespread faculty adoption of OER is an important piece of solving that puzzle. And we need folks like Tanya um, working on this, both at the macro and the micro level. Yeah, I think that's excellent. Yeah, very, very good point. Do you think we have time for a quick plug? 
or are we burn in daylight here? I think we do. All right. No. All right. Well, I'll try to make it quick. So podcasts, as most of our listeners will attest, are generally uh, auditory media. I mean, they're definitely video podcasts, but purists would say podcasts or audio. However, since the pandemic, starting back with episode 64, we've been releasing video recordings of each episode on YouTube. And by golly, more than one person has been watching each of those. I I'm mystified personally, but there are folks who uh, do that. And if you've made it this far, but are not by nature an audio person, those video recordings might be just up your alley. So check out TopCast on YouTube at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash TopCast YouTube, bit.ly slash TopCast YouTube, lowercase, no spaces. So check it out. You can, you can watch the magic happen. And who knows? There might be a cameo appearance by one of my cats that you wouldn't otherwise know about. Or possibly I'll spill something. Uh, that has happened. <laughs> and for those who may have been watching, they'll notice that you had a wardrobe change from the top half of this episode to the bottom half of this episode. Yeah, I, I, did, I did stay covered both in the top half and the bottom half, but I am now uh, displaying, because we're talking about the miracle of time, time travel via podcasting. I'm vintage uh, time travel treatise from Doctor Who here. Uh, Kelvin Bentley would appreciate this. It's all timey-wimey. <laughs> That's right. So There you go. Yeah, there you go. Sponsored by Doctor Who. Well, Tom, uh, I guess that's about it. Until next time, for TopCast, I'm Kelvin. And I'm Tom. See ya. See ya.